Hi, my name is Steve Taylor and welcome to our brand new podcast called Share Ed, created by Robin Hood Multi Academy Trust. In episode two, we've decided to focus on professional learning development and we're delighted to welcome Catherine Morgan to the podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know Catherine, she's played a prominent role in pushing the national conversation on meaningful staff professional development. She's been an associate dean with Ambition School Leadership. She's helped to run SLT chat on a national scale on Twitter, and she's been a regional lead for Women's Ed. Importantly, Catherine also has worked across many school settings, including being the director for professional development for Prince Albert Community Trust, a mat in Birmingham. There are few people who understand CPD to the level Catherine does, and so we're delighted to welcome her to the podcast. Okay, Catherine, so welcome to ShareEd's um, podcast, which our tagline is at the heart of education lies collaboration. Now, we particularly looked to bring someone in who was going to talk with great passion around professional development for teachers and to give a guidance and insight into really how people can move their careers on. And when I was researching who we were going to invite to this podcast, Really, I looked up a range of people, but you were the main person who came to my mind because you've had, you're 36 years old, you've had such a broad career at a relatively young age, and you've made lots of connections. You've worked in state schools, you've worked in, um, you've worked for a MAT, you've worked for Ambition School Leadership, you're doing really well on SL Teacher and other areas. So you really became the obvious person who could connect the dots for us. So if we just get started, what, what does professional development mean to you? you know, what inspired you to really focus your, your career on that area? Well, first of all, Steve, I'm, uh, thank you very much for that introduction. No pressure. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, for me personally, I've had a really varied teaching experience. And prior to working in a multi-academy trust, I'd worked for um, four very different local authority maintained schools, all different Ofsted gradings. And I started off as an NQT in a school that went into special measures in my first term. And I honestly believe that that was the catalyst for my interest into what makes really great uh, professional learning and development. Because I realized from that experience, which was incredibly challenging, that actually many teachers nationally have been held to account for practice that if they haven't received high quality professional learning and development are actually not necessarily wholly responsible for then the varying degrees of impact that they have in the classroom and people deserve to be invested in and if we are going to really understand Um, the impact that teachers can make in the classroom we have to really invest in the type of professional learning and development that's going to enable them to flourish and thrive ultimately then impacting on student outcomes so for me everything that we do in school bar obviously safeguarding which is incredibly important uh, is about professional learning and development and this is exactly why we've got you on this podcast, because what you've just said in the first 30 seconds justifies all that. So as an NQT in a special measures school, because I think special measures schools, they don't have to get tarnished with a brush. And obviously, you know, quite rightly in some respects, but often if you're a teacher in a special measures school, then, you know, people outside looking in can judge everyone as being completely flawed. I think what you've just said makes perfect sense. So what professional development did you get as an NQT in a special measures school? Awful? Good? I mean, if you weren't learning for yourself, tell us a little bit about that. That's a really good question. So I think the the situation in my first school was such that I went to look around the school and the deputy head who showed me around was very honest and open and explained that it had been a school that had for a long period of time been in difficulty. The local authority had tried to support them. It was very likely in the next Ofsted inspection that the school would either managed to scrape on again or would go into special measures. I remember discussing with my parents at the time whether or not it was the right decision. And I remember my dad said to me, but isn't this why you went into teaching? Didn't you want to make the type of difference 
um, yeah. in those communities that most need it. And so I went and I took the role and it was interesting because you're right, special measures schools get such a hard press. And I would say that they often have some incredibly hardworking colleagues who for a variety of reasons haven't been invested in, haven't had the professional learning and development to help make improvements, sustainable improvements in their practice. So they end up getting trapped in these habits that don't necessarily then lead to the positive income outcomes that the schools need. Um, and so it's a bit of a vicious cycle. So in my, in my first year, we did have obviously staff meetings after school and we were having support from the local authority. But to be perfectly honest, the problems were so deep rooted that we did need special measures. We did need to sort of draw a line in the sand, recalibrate yeah. the culture and build that school up from the bottom um, using professional learning and development. And um, having come out of university, so I did my PGC at the University of Birmingham, I was absolutely full of passion, full of enthusiasm and excitement to share some of that learning with staff. I think PGCEs often get a bad press. Um, and I appreciate that like anything, it, you know, it, there are some that are good, there are some that are bad, there are some that are in between. I was fortunate to have had a really good uh, PGC experience. And so I was able to sort of support some staff who'd been there longer um, who'd been teaching much longer than I had. And I realized straight away how important trust, humility and vulnerability are in yeah. getting colleagues to collaborate. So if I'd have gone in thinking that I was a know-it-all, having only been in the classroom for five minutes, then yeah. I absolutely wouldn't have got the trust and the respect from my colleagues. It is yeah. very much about attentively exploring ideas, modeling those yourself, being reflective, modeling that vulnerability and realizing that there's so much from us for us to learn from each other. Um, yeah. So it was a really positive experience, despite being one of the hardest, I think, also. Well, well, I mean, I think I totally agree with you about about vulnerability. You know, often I think the more that we develop in our careers, the more that we understand, you know, from a personal point of view, that definitely as I've moved on in my career, maybe when I, I took on a headship in my early 30s, probably a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Not that I wasn't vulnerable, but how I displayed that at times, you know, I felt like people were judging me because of my age. And I think the more you get comfortable in your own skin, the more you're, you're willing, aren't you, to let your vulnerability show a little bit more, to talk about what it is that you need to improve on and how things can be developed. So I, t I totally get what you're saying in terms of pushing, if you're going to really push on professional development, people have got to be prepared to drop their guard and have got to be prepared to open it. So just finish up on the NQT part, um there how much of that did you have to self-drive and how much i mean it sounds like you were getting staff meetings but in terms of your own reflective development as an nqt how much was that down to you and your core drive compared to what the school were offering you um i think probably uh i think much of it came down from my own personal drive I suppose um, I think it's it's far easier to enter a situation coming from the outside you more often than not can see the areas that need improvement because if you've been somewhere for a long time then you develop habits and behaviors that become normal parts of your practice and it's much much harder than you to be able to see the areas that need improvement I think from what we understand now about different biases people invest a lot of time and effort into their practice and behaviors and to, ha to have that criticized uh, is a really difficult thing and I think um, that's where that piece around vulnerability and, and making sure that you establish the type of trust where people are willing to be very honest and open about their practice is integral to yeah. improvement and without it we end up just putting sticking plasters on things um, and they don't lead to sustainable improvement. Uh, and I think that's that's a huge problem in our sector at the moment, a fixation with lots of change initiatives, 
I think we've got change yeah. fatigue, but that those change initiatives could be better or worse than what we had before. So the focus really needs to be on how can we ensure that change leads to improvement so that actually we end up with a better situation, a better outcome than the one that we had before. And that was a real challenge in the school in special measures because as an NQTL, I wasn't in a leadership position to be able to influence uh, the school in the way that I wanted to. So I was only there for two years. Um, yeah. I was fortunate to have had a really positive experience with Ofsted in that two year period, uh, Steve, and then yeah. ended up um, being approached by a school, a local school not far from the one that I was at to go and lead uh, year six as year group leader. So in oh, fact, okay. it accelerated my, uh, my experience yeah. as an early teacher because I straight away jumped then into middle leadership. And looking back now, if I'm completely honest, part of me is regretful that I didn't spend long enough just really developing my craft as a classroom teacher. And that in part is why I've taken a range of sideways and backward steps in my career to date, because I'm really keen to make sure that I've got breadth and depth uh, to my knowledge and understanding, especially if I'm someone who wants to share uh, my, my sort of expertise around professional learning and development. I think from a, from a credibility perspective, that's really important to me. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me as though with your mindset, I wonder how many NQTs go and work in a special measures school and end up giving up and leaving. And yet your mindset, it sounds as though you were reflective and uh, vulnerable from the start and as a result, you know, positively vulnerable. And as a result, then you're able to kick on relatively quickly and go and get promotion within two years. A lot of it, when we, when we talk about that dropping of the guard, it does come down to mindset, doesn't it? In terms of how people view themselves. I suppose it was a little bit easier for you going into a, spe- a school that got special measures because you're at the start of your career. And therefore, maybe some staff at that school might have been tarnished with the brush a little bit more because maybe they helped build the school to get it to the point where it went into special measures, where I suppose when you joined it, you joined with a, with a clean slate almost, didn't you? Yeah, um, to say. yeah, I think that probably is fair to say. Um, it's interesting you talk about mindset because my experience at the school in the first term was not a positive one in terms of my classroom practice. So I ended up having some really difficult uh, observations from my mentor and from the head teacher at the time. And I think in that first autumn term, they were actually quite concerned about my practice because it was so different from other teachers in the school. And I was very close to giving up actually. And I remember having a conversation with my parents at the time and said that I didn't think I was cut out for it. And again, with my dad who said, no, keep going. you know, you've got, it's something, teaching is a craft, you've got to practice, you've got to make mistakes, you've got to learn, it's not about giving up, you know, you made this decision, you've got to see it out longer than a term, and then Ofsted came in the spring term, and I ended up getting such a positive um, Ofsted experience that actually the the, the HMI inspector called me in, Um, so the school went into special measures uh, in the spring, sorry, the school went into special measures in the spring, I had a really positive um, observation from the lead inspector at the time, and then when the HMI inspector returned in the autumn of the following year, she actually took me to one side to say how impressed she was that I had stayed in the school, she'd read through my NQT file, I think she sort of realised that part of the reason that I had been perceived to be failing was that my practice was just so different from what they were used to be seeing. And it wasn't that my practice was wrong. It was perhaps that they hadn't kept up to date with developments in pedagogy. So I think that, um, yeah, it was interesting and I didn't hold, I wasn't cross with anyone. I didn't feel, um, that anybody had treated me unfairly. I think it was probably the making of me, if I'm honest, because I realized straight away that leadership's really hard and they honestly thought they were doing the right thing, but that could have ended up, you know, destroying someone's career. Um, And so it made me even more passionate then about understanding how we can really harness effective professional learning and development, not just for teachers, but for leaders as well, because every, you know, it matters so much and, so yeah, mindset, I think that really, really impacted my whole attitude and approach to reflection, being vulnerable, 
uh, I make a lot of mistakes, Steve, so it's hard not to be reflective and embrace vulnerability, but isn't that part of learning? I guess that's the fun part, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think it's something that we're probably not always great at. It's ironic, isn't it? But education isn't great at, um, at not, uh, I think reflecting is the wrong word, but, you know, sometimes being vulnerable and dropping our guard and saying, you know, if you make a mistake in front of a class full of kids, if you're running a school and you make a mistake, of course, if you said you didn't care, then you're letting a load of children down. Mm. And that's really, um, you know, that would be, that would be reckless. But at the same point, you know, it just seems to me that sometimes people don't, they're not willing to drop their guard because uh, education cuts through us to the core, doesn't it? It's a, it's a vocation and it's a moral calling. And so sometimes to admit that we haven't got it right, pe- people avoid doing that because ultimately they think it makes them a bad person. And I think getting, getting past that and going really and being vulnerable and being very reflective and knowing that if you do something and it hasn't worked out, that's okay. The main thing is that you learn from it. You don't repeat the process. We just... I don't think that's a common thing to see in education. I think, you know, for you in, in, in what you've described, that is, you do that all the time. Um, I do my best to do that and people in our trust do the best to do it. But across education as a sector, I think that we've still got some development to do. We're, we're, we're hampered. Yeah, I mean, I certainly try to. Um, and I think I, for that reason, surround myself with uh, friends and colleagues who I know are going to give me really candid feedback. So yeah, I, I really think that uh, kind candor is incredibly important. You want to surround yeah. yourself with people who are going to give you real insight into your practice and your actions and behaviors, not just sort of tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, But I I don't think that the situation with reflection is just unique to our sector. I think you only have to look at our current political context to realize that we aren't necessarily very good at holding our hands up and saying, actually, I've made a mistake there. Um, or oh, I should have should have done X. I think humility is something that's incredibly important in leadership. Um, yeah, but totally. not just the leaders, I think as, as classroom teachers as well. Um, yeah. And sadly, I think sometimes we can feel under pressure to sort of feel that we've got all of the answers, but we most definitely haven't. And I think that flexibility yeah. in, in thinking and, and kindness and compassion for ourselves is really important too. Yeah, 100% agree. Absolutely with everything you've said there. So if we if we fast forward a little bit then from from your NQT, yeah, really, really, really good to hear that. And I think hopefully, um, over the next year, our NQT is going to listen to this podcast and, and hearing that experience that you've had, uh, when it's quite an isolating thing being NQT is going to be really good for them, you know, just to understand how you have that, that inner, that inner steeliness and grit to get yourself out of sometimes some tricky situations. So moving forwards now in terms of um, professional development, you, you know, you went and worked for Matt, you've worked for Ambition School Leadership. For you, what makes great, what makes great professional learning development then? What are some of the best things you've seen and, and, and how has that impacted? So that's a really, really good question. And it's a question that has caused and continues to cause much debate in our sector. So there's some integral reports that have helped us um, understand what what effective professional learning development looks like. So you've got Helen Timperley's work, I think, from 2007, which then helped to inform um, what makes the What Makes Great Teaching report from the Sutton Trust. So that's uh, Rob yeah. Coe et al. So that was in 2014, and then that helped to inform the paper from that was commissioned by the Teach Development Trust, developing great teaching in 2015, which subsequently ended up. Um, supporting the DFE's uh, recommendations for the standards for professional learning and development, CPD standards. But recently, um, Sam Sims and Harry Fletcher Wood, uh, very recently in fact, have just published an article that sort of uh, unpicks some of the things that we thought make professional development and have challenged some of those. So what I'm going to do is to start off with giving some some insight into what effective professional learning development looks like based on my experiences and then touch upon um, some of the points that Harry and Sam have recently made because I think 
it's important to have um, a really you know, varied understanding of the research, but then also pay respect to um, experience having actually led on it. So when I was Director of Professional Learning and Development at MAT, I was fortunate to have worked with uh, Vivian Porritt to create an impact model for professional learning and development. So we took much of the research around what makes um, great teaching and how you develop great teaching. And we used Thomas Gusky's um, mo uh, model of evaluation. So there's five levels in Thomas Gusky's uh, model and we use that then to create an impact approach so that we weren't just focusing on generic CPD we were actually focusing on developing knowledge and skills that were going to positively yeah. impact specific outcomes in the classroom. So Gusky's model has got five, five levels and the first uh, level is participants reaction so often when you go to a conference or a course you might end up with an evaluation sheet at the end often called happy sheets where we have to uh, fill in basically our experience of the course and that could be anything from the room uh, the lunch the catering etc and it's to gauge um, some sort of reaction that will help us to design the professional learning and development in the future. Um, so it usually centers on the delivery of that particular program. The second one then is the participants learning. So actually I've accessed um, this particular six month coaching program um, and what's the learning that I've taken from that. So that's really important because- That if element I have of reflection then. Pardon? That element of reflection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because we waste such a lot of money on CPD um, and often it's because we're actually accessing things that we perhaps can already do or already know. And that often happens in insets and staff meetings after school. So if we're yeah. then um, going to be designing impactful CPD, we need to be really clear on what it is that people are going to be learning during that process. Because if people have already got um, some understanding of that, then we need to then start to look at how we're going to challenge those colleagues. Um, the third so there, isn't it really, don't you think it's really odd and ironic that we don't do that as a matter of course in education? We spend so much time looking at what we want the children to learn. Absolutely. Assessing it, evaluating it, and make sure that we're delivering their learning at their needs. And yet, it's absolutely ironic that schools up and down the country, not everyone, but broadly speaking over the past 10 years, often when CPD is delivered, it's not always done with the same rigorous approach in mind. It's, it's, I think it's bizarre. Yeah, it's a huge problem, Steve. So um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Helen Timpley's work. So she's a New Zealand professor. She's done a considerable amount of research um, into, into effective professional learning and development. She's worked with John Hattie on looking at effective feedback, etc. And um, in one of her books, she interviewed um, some teachers in New Zealand. And one of them was quoted as saying, when she asked them how they felt about CPD, one of them was quoted as saying that he hoped he died in inset training because the transition between life and death would be so seamless. And I think that that really captures why Geski's uh, level two is so important how often are we making colleagues sit through things that they already know or can already do and I have to say safeguarding is often and first aid training is often an area that causes the most frustration because on the one hand it's, in, it's incredibly important that people are up to date with safeguarding uh, procedures and practices absolutely and first aid um, but on the other hand, people are then sitting through things that perhaps they're already aware of. And so then they'll switch off and they won't necessarily take in the information to the required level of depth that the facilitator would want them to. So I do think that's an area that we need to perhaps look into to make sure that people are getting refreshes and top, top ups because they're absolutely important. But how can we do it in a way that keeps people's motivation and attitude towards that um, particular training really fresh? And, and, and I think that's something that needs exploration. Um, back to Gusky's levels then. So the third level is all around organisational support. Yeah. So organisational support is what systems and structures and processes are in place so that if I go on a course and I come back into one of your schools in the Robin Hood um, Trust, yeah. who is going to help me 
to put that into practice? Who's going to help me to learn from the mistakes that I'm going to make? So it might be that I need some support and therefore I need somebody to help coach me through the process. It could be yeah. that I require some time off my timetable so that I can um, engage with professional learning and learn more about a specific aspect. Um, and actually far too often we'll go on a course or we'll engage with a program and we come back into school and because it's so busy and those systems and processes and supports not in place, we don't yeah. end up doing anything with it or we do something with it for the first couple of months. And then as things start to increase um, in terms of uh, competing demands, we fall back to the behaviors that we've yeah. spent a long time developing. And it's really hard then to change those habits. And I'm going to come back to habits um, in a moment. So the third level from Gusky's framework is uh, organizational support and change. The fourth then is participants use of new knowledge, which links really nicely to that. So how am I ensuring that there is opportunity and time to apply that into the classroom? How will I know it's making a difference? Well, I'm only going to know it's making a difference if I've created some sort of baseline of what it was like before. So I've got some comparative judgment. And then yeah. the final level on Gusky's um, model is student learning. So professional learning and development should be having a positive impact on student outcomes. So we need to be really, really clear on what the need is from those of those student outcomes. So the the model from Gusky is one to five it has one to five levels. But the idea is, is that you start at level five and you work backwards. So you start with the difference you want to make to student outcomes. From yeah. that end, you can then jump to level four where you identify, well, if this is the difference I need to make in maths in year five in place value, in terms of level four, my colleagues now need to have this knowledge of place value and we need to look at this pedagogical practice. And then level three, what support are my colleagues in year five going to need over two terms? Because professional learning and development at the very minimum needs to be um, over two terms for us to see any sort of, um, you know, uh, concrete impact. And then the yeah. second level then is, um, so actually what learning has taken place from that process with the, the final one, then level one being, and what's their individual reaction. And that individual reaction is really important because that's about their buy-in, their motivation um, and their ability to recognize how their own sort of act of reflection, how their practice has developed through the process. Yeah. Now, Gusky's model is, um, probably the model that's most commonly used. I know that, uh, Rob, uh, Rob Coe has been looking into, um, so, so he's got a great report in the Charter College of Teaching Impact um, journal, I think it's from 2018, where he looks at Gusky's model and the things that are successful with it and then highlights some of the areas that need uh, improvement. At the end of the day, it's really, really difficult to evaluate the impact of professional learning and development because you've got so many factors that impact it. Um, I would say that Gusky's model is uh, it, it's better to use it than not, than not at all. I think we need to be able to have some confidence that the professional learning and development is making a difference, but it's not a panacea. And I think essentially all of this is reliant upon our formative judgments and formative assessments of that baseline. And that's where my work with Vivian Porritt at the Pact was so important because Vivian came in and helped us to uh, support colleagues, leaders to baseline starting points so that we had a really good understanding of what uh, business as usual looked like, looked like in maths or reading or writing or what particular subject area it was. And then from that baseline picture, we could then um, have a look at the difference that we wanted to make, starting with Gusky's level five. So if that's what the baseline's looking like in maths, how do we want student outcomes to improve? So we would then write down um, what those improvement milestones would look like. And then the professional learning and development programs would bridge that gap from the original baseline to what we wanted that intended impact to look like. And so yeah. therefore, you're entering into professional learning and development programs, so not one-off sessions, actually sustainable programs over a period of time that are being driven by the intended difference you want to make 
rather than just a one-off let's all do something that somebody's seen on Twitter or that the school that's outstanding down the road is doing it's actually based on need and based on impact so that's what we um, started to uh, work towards at the Prince Albert Community Trust. And how did you how, how did that across the course of a year how did that impact on, on, on professional development I take it, it you know staff got a much more meaningful experience because we're talking about something that's been really well strategized yeah yeah absolutely so year one was all about um doing the groundwork in terms of culture so there's yeah. some really powerful research from craft and pape 2014 that looks at the impact a positive learning environment has on um teacher performance teacher practice and so sometimes we forget that culture isn't separate from learning professional learning and development it's intrinsically linked so for you to be able to get the impact out of your um, professional learning development uh, provision you need to make sure that you've got the groundwork in place in terms of culture so that is building relationships building trust putting dialogue at the heart of that process so in year one uh, we looked at the number of staff meetings that were taking place after school and ring fence certain meetings to have some one-to-one -one dialogues, group dialogues, to really inquire and find out more about individuals' practice so that we could okay. then start to uh, shape um, what the professional learning and development offer needed to look like. And I think yeah. the key in the first instance was getting buy-in and moving from a model of professional learning and development being done to people to them actually seeing that they play an integral part in that process so those conversations don't, don't you think though that um we went through uh, at the um at robert and matt a couple of years ago we, we entered into doing some work with curie route maps have you seen them yes yeah far 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 from perfect but the 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 premise around self-directed learning the one thing that we totally and utterly hadn't understood or appreciated was that and i don't want to sound ageist here uh, but it probably, probably i'm going to sound a bit ageist generally the people our staff who are of a younger age and had just come out of um university or those who had got a specific mindset they might not be young just their, their particular mindset and they're quite inquisitive they they picked it up and they really enjoyed self-directing and, and following different elements we had a lot of staff who it caused actually caused a lot of anxiety for because they'd had their career being told what they needed to do and mm. how they needed to do it and so when we when we put the curie route maps in place we had to do a lot of undoing some people's thinking around it because actually what it came down to was that they didn't want to always find out what they needed to do they they wanted to be told because that was their comfort model so what you've described in your and you've just said to me around you know you had a lot of one-to-ones and you found out really what you're doing then is you're looking at the need within your within your group of staff aren't you so then you can build yeah. the the concept yeah, so that's interesting because Vivian Porritt talks about um, moving away from an output model to one of an, an input model. So yeah. it, it's about, um, so we often, we often have focused too much on what we want that output to be and not necessarily about the, um, the sort of inputs that, that are required in order to make that difference, to make that change. Yeah. And I think um, the paper that's just been uh, written by Harry Fletcher Wood and Sam Sims is particularly pertinent here because they've been reasonably critical of the outcomes of the um, What Makes Great Teaching report and the Developing Great Teaching report because in that report it talks about uh, effective professional learning and development needs to be um, needs to have a clear focus on the knowledge and skills okay so we're not just looking at generic um, professional development uh, we need to be really clear and that links to Gusky's model identifying that learning from the offset um, we need to have collaboration uh, it needs yeah. to be at least over that two-term period and we need to be able to iterate it so that we're learning from this we're not thinking that it's just a set process um, 
and it needs to have internal and external input. However, in Harry Fletcher Wood and uh, Sam Sims' recent article, they look at collaboration in particular because if we know what to make what makes effective professional learning and development, why aren't we getting it right more often than we are? Because actually, for much of the time, and you only have to look at the Education Endowment Foundation Fund uh, Toolkit for this, a lot of the time we're not necessarily having the impact that we that we want to be having. So they start to unpick collaboration because there've been some programs that have got all of those ingredients for effective professional learning and development, yet they're not having an impact. Um, yeah. And so in their recent paper, they, they, that they're sort of suggesting that we need to focus more on not only in knowledge of, of what works, but also looking at the psychology or behavior psychology. So it's actually about evidence that something works and also evidence for the mechanism of making it work. So they're actually now starting to look at habits and habit building. So for your colleagues who just want to be told what to do, that's because for them throughout their career, they've just been so used to having been told what to do and yeah. uh, developed behaviors and habits that they might be blissfully unaware of and as Dylan Williams says it's incredibly hard changing teacher habits um, and that's where most professional learning and development fails when we don't take that into account so I think the nod from Harry um, and Sam in terms of focusing on that mechanism as well as the impact of something working is incredibly important and we know more now than we ever have before in terms of the psychology of how we learn and the importance of memory and I think that's a really welcome uh, what, for me personally I think it's really welcomed because based on my experience of having led professional learning development as a deputy in a primary and then across a multi-academy trust we are changing behaviors and habits and that's incredibly hard and it takes a really long time and um, we mustn't underestimate that the ingredients for effective professional learning and development are, are so uh, fundamentally linked to our behaviors and our actions um, that we need to we need to be mindful of that wow I mean, one one thing I'm going to say is after the, when I listen back to this podcast, I think I've got quite a lot of background reading to do, <laughs> based based on a lot of the studies and um, and things. And uh, just reflecting on that and uh, and listen to what you're saying, you know, there's, there's so much there's so much research out there. What is ultimately being described there in terms of moving professional development forward? When we when we put it like that. And with so much research, it could be a really complex, really complex um, area to push on into. I listened to Rongan Chatterjee interview a guy called BJ Fogg. Have you heard of him? No. I think it was Harvard. I've probably got it wrong, or it could be Yale. But um, he was a he, he is a, um, a professor there, and um, one of his classes was around developing a. Um, a photography app just when the internet was you know really coming into the forefront and and the people who founded instagram um actually created the idea during one of his classes oh, wow. and bj fogg in that podcast that i listened to really the biggest thing that comes back to anything is simplicity and in many respects simplicity is the hardest thing in the world because uh, particularly when people are buying um professional development products and things you know if you're spending a significant amount of money you want pages and pages for your strategy or for what it is that you're buying and yet often to get something absolutely simple and crystal clear whilst it looks like sometimes it's been thrown on the side of a4 piece of paper it could have had hundreds and thousands of hours to distill the information down to something that is really easy to for people to sort of uptake so you know, I think when Prince Albert appointed you, they're really fortunate they got someone who ultimately has a high level of thinking and, and knowledge and understanding and, and wants to look at background reading. If you're in a primary school that's out in rural wherever or a small inner city primary school and doesn't have the, the ability to have someone like you there, what, what guidance would you be giving um, leaders and, and educators if they really want to improve their professional development, but they maybe they don't have quite the capacity to look at 
in the same strategic way that you were able to unpacked and have been able to do in your career. If we distill that down to two or three key principles, what would you really, I'm asking you to think on the spot here, I get this. What would you really, <laughs> no pressure. What, yeah. would you really, what, what would you really encourage them to do with all of those studies out there, with all of that information and all of that learning that's constantly taking place? If you want to say two or three things to really push on professional development, where, where, where would you encourage them to start? So you're absolutely right. We are, it's a blessing and a curse in some respects that we are in a situation to be, uh, to have so much insight into research and evidence. You've got organizations yeah. like the EEF who are synthesizing all sorts of research and carrying out trials. And I would really encourage people to engage with their toolkit with the caveat that you need to really know your context because yeah. what might work in one setting won't necessarily work in your setting. So I would really encourage people, whether it's the EEF toolkit or a specific piece of research it could be the charter college of teaching uh impact journals they could attend a research ed event to really interrogate that piece of research and evidence okay. and really understand your own context because so don't just so don't just pick it up and expect it to be a complete golden bullet and the magic answer pick it up and spend a good bit of time distilling that information and really understand where it's coming from essentially yeah yeah, so I, I guess if we're looking at absolute clarity for our listeners yeah. here, my number one piece of advice would be know your context. And once you yeah. know your context, you're able to then distill uh, that piece of research or evidence or insight from a blog and really consider how pertinent or useful it might be in your setting. Um, so that would be my number one, really know your context. Yeah. So when I'm talking about context, I'm talking about not only your students' needs, but your teaching team. So different years of service, um, attitude yeah. towards different subjects. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm talking about context in terms of individuals, um, teams, and then wider yeah. school needs. My, my second point then would be, once you know your context, um, I suppose, let's say that number two then is interrogate that piece of research and evidence um, okay. because you're then able to look at the EEF toolkit um, and, and say, okay, this looks like it could be um, useful in our context because we've got an issue with maths, uh, but actually what adaptations or what additional organisational support is needed for us to be able to implement this with fidelity because more often than not, we have change fatigue in our sector because, as you've already said, lots of time and effort is put into, uh, is put into strategic plans. But yeah. then there seems to be a problem with implementing those plans with fidelity so that they lead to the type of positive change and improvement that's intended. So yeah. I think that the third is to really understand implementation. So actually okay. provide your staff with as much opportunity to learn how to implement something successfully as the actual yeah. knowledge and skills that they need to learn to develop their practice in a particular area. So number one, context. Number two, critical analysis, challenge, interrogate that research. And number three, yeah. support your teams to be able to implement. So what that requires is when we come to implement some sort of change then in school, in the first instance, we need to have a go at implementation cycles to just learn about how to successfully carry out an implementation project. But yeah. the problem we have in our current sector is, unless you're doing a national professional qualification like your MBQML, SL or H, etc., you probably haven't been given the opportunity to implement um, a project. And I think that's hugely problematic. We seem to reserve the implementation of an improvement plan to leadership when actually yeah. if I am a classroom yeah. teacher and I want to inquire and develop an aspect of my practice, well, essentially I'm going to be implementing an inquiry project, project and therefore I need to be able to understand what successful implementation looks like. So I think yeah. more often than not, we, we look for silver bullets. We want to take something off the shelf 
but we underestimate how difficult it is to implement something with fidelity because this comes back to our issue with changing behaviors and habits and the psychology and behavioral science that sits behind that um so i think it's i think they would be three areas that i would encourage uh leaders in school to really look into and remember that it's not just about leaders knowing the context teachers and teaching assistants also need to know the context as well um because if if they don't then we're moving back to professional learning and development being done to people and not done with people i'd also argue that it's teaching assistants and teachers that have far far greater insights into what business as usual looks like in the classroom than any leader be their middle leader or senior leader could ever have and I think that then links really nicely to the work of Vivian Robinson so if you take those three bits of advice that I would give um, basically wrapping around all of that is the importance of professional conversations so Vivian Robinson's work around engagement versus bypass theory is built on the notion that far too often as leaders we fixate on the future but we don't yeah. understand the present well enough. And how powerful yeah. is that? Because that links to Vivian Porritt's work with me and the baseline and really understanding that starting point. So before we fixate on what the future is going to look like and the difference this professional learning and development is going to make, we really need to understand the present. And in order to understand the presence, we need to drill into people's theories of action. So for you, Steve, as a CEO of a trust, you will have picked yeah. up um certain behaviors and actions that you carry out day in day out and they will be informed by your values and your beliefs and you'll be blissfully unaware of many of them so if you're going to want to improve your practice in a certain way we need to understand what your theory of action is first of all your baseline your starting point the present before we can then say what's the future going to look like so if i was well, supporting- I, sorry i was just about i was just i was just about to say that um actually can we, now that you say it you know based on this me listening to personally listen to a lot of wrong and chatterjee things um i've started you know I, I now um i now do daily um mindfulness through the car map yeah. and, and 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 a big part of that is not looking to the future but looking to the to the here and now it's not just um it's not just a leader leadership or an education um issue it's a humanity issue isn't it you know naturally we always our minds always wander and they speculate to the future either positively or negatively but um so i can totally see where 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 that would come in and and, and absolutely understanding like you were saying with my own behavioral traits and things really understand about how i operate in the here and now before i start you know maybe in some cases um, negatively reinforcing those moving forwards, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I, I think it, I think you're right. It's not something that's just generic to our sector. I think as human beings, many of us fixate on the future and what we want the future to look like when actually we need to be really focusing our attention on the present and on the here, the here and now. Um, and I, I think Robinson's work is particularly impactful in that area. So her open to learning conversations, um, we use those at the Prince Albert Community Trust to help us baseline starting points, to help us drill into yeah. people's theories of action. And what they actually do is they build up Um, high levels of relational trust because you're coming in as a leader um, and you're basically creating the type of relationship and partnership where the person that you're working with knows that you're as invested in their improvements as they are so I think that's incredibly important and it comes back to you know when I started off as an NQT in a special measures school, how important trust was then to be able to share some insights that I'd learned on my PGC with colleagues who'd been teaching far, far longer than I had. Um, So yeah, I agree. If we could do anything, I think we need to just make sure that we're focusing on the present and the now and deeply understanding that before we then try and make any improvements for the future. Um, So to summarize, really the, the the three takeaways there is one know your context students teaching team 
Two, interrogate the piece of research and evidence to make sure you know it really, really um, to a high level. I'd argue there as well, just stick with one. You know, the amount of times that people pick up multiple layers and don't okay. understand one in depth, they try and take on way too many, which creates a problem. And then understanding the implementation, but the main thing that runs through and courses through all of that is Vivian Robinson and the professional conversation. So looking at the here and now um, before you start looking to the future. Does that summarize um, it? Yeah, totally. Um, and I think the Vivian Robinson bit to highlight is drilling into people's theories of action. So we need to really understand the beliefs and values that underpin people's day-to-day -day practice before we even attempt to make any improvements to that and they are an integral part of that process so you have buy-in from the you know from the word go um, because they're providing you with insight insights as to why they do the things that they do um, yeah. and together you can shape the uh the new theory of action which has been co-constructed rather than it just being something that senior leaders have decided that everybody's going to do yeah, okay, I totally see the value in that, that you get an absolute buy-in from, from, from the team before you even launch something. Um, okay, I mean, I think that's been, re that's been really useful. Uh, we're, we're, I'm mindful of the fact that the podcast we're looking at between half an hour and an hour, this is so interesting, we could go on for, we could go on for many hours. Can we bring it back to you a little bit um, again? Yeah. Um, just, just really interesting in your, in your career and um, always fascinated by people's stepping stones and, and different things. And yours have been so, so varied. So what about who's been the biggest influence on your career? Um, do you think from, it doesn't have to be anyone in education. It can be just anyone that, that's given you an inner drive to be where you are today. So, uh, this is, uh, this is a great question because it stumps me um, in the sense that I'd struggle to say one person. I think in terms of education... You mentioned, it, you mentioned bouncing off your dad quite a lot. Yeah, if it was to be a, a family member, then I would, yeah. I'd choose my dad in the sense that he was a medical physicist and we moved up from Swansea when he became the director of medical physics at the... Q Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. So I learned yeah. a lot of insights from about leadership from him. But he also instilled um, so he also instilled a huge passion for specific subject areas. So as a physicist, he lived and breathed science. And so I became yeah. absolutely fascinated with science. And okay. um, he also highlighted the importance of knowledge. And I think yeah. sometimes knowledge can be a dirty word, but actually knowledge is integral if i'm going to be able to think deeply i need to have knowledge in the first place to be able to do that yeah. um i think in terms of educationalists it would definitely be the work of thomas gusky vivian robinson helen timpley i think especially for professional learning and development they'd be three people that really stand out for me but i think okay. ultimately based on all of the schools that i've worked in um I think in only a relatively short period, I've had um, eight different head teachers because I've, so I started off in a school in special measures and that ended up with two teachers. I then moved to a school that was a good school, became outstanding. Then I went and actively chose to, to teach in a school in requires improvement. And then I went to take on assistant headship and deputy headship in another school um, that required improvement. So for a variety of reasons, I ended up with that many head teachers. And I think all of them have helped shape and influence the choices that I've made as a leader and continue to make because we never stop learning, do we? And we're never the finished no, articles. No, absolutely. So... Uh, all of those eight yeah all of them i'd say all of them for a variety of reasons and i suppose um some reasons good some reasons not so bad um but i think sometimes some it's sometimes people who um sometimes people who make our lives difficult or create a response in us where we fiercely don't believe in their views on education and how they would do things at the time, it's so difficult to deal with and handle. But actually, I think often when I see people say that they don't understand how to develop a vision, 
If you want to know how to develop a vision, go and work somewhere that challenges every fiber of your being about what you believe in in education and you'll develop a vision yeah. instantaneously. Because to know what you believe, you've got to know what you don't believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I would say that for some of those eight head teachers, there's no animosity there, but for some of them, yeah. uh, it was for perhaps slightly negative reasons that they ended up impacting my views. And at the time, yeah, it was really yeah. hard. looking back now, I think, gosh, I'm so pleased that they, they acted in that way or behaved in that way or had that particular belief because it's really helped me to shape mine in a different direction sometimes sometimes in the same direction um yeah. so yeah i agree with you i think sometimes those individuals can end up being hugely influential in a positive way yeah totally so uh, where next for you in your career then what's the really ambition um so i think for me personally um I don't at this point in time want to go into headship. I'm fortunate to be a chair of governors um, and work alongside a phenomenal head teacher. She really is superb and I'm learning as much from her as I have from anybody else. She's, she's superb. Um, yeah. And I'm really enjoying doing different projects for some different trusts and, and national organizations. I'm going to do a master's in educational leadership and I'm going okay. to really deepen and understand my craft of leadership um, and carry on sort of developing a niche understanding of professional learning and development. Who knows, maybe one day I'll go into headship. Um, but I think at the moment I'm so passionate about teacher and leadership education that I feel like I would like to have that academic rigor behind me to, uh, to understand it even more. Okay. Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe at some point one day, does it feel like going to become a head teacher would be selling out then? No, not at all. I suppose I'm almost flipping the narrative though, Steve, because I think yeah. that for many head teachers, they might move on sort of, I don't know, mid fifties, early sixties and become consultants and they're really important and they might um, work for different organizations and help to, um, you know, troubleshoot and inform policy yeah. and but for me I almost want to flip it and do lots of different things at the beginning of my career with the intention of then maybe one day putting that into practice in a school and then seeing out the rest of my career in that school rather than sort of moving yeah. on and taking on consultancy afterwards yeah okay okay just always always interesting to hear how people are progressing and and, and viewing viewing their careers I mean I love to hear when people I think it'd be a shame if at some point you don't go into headship, you know, because if you've got that much insight at some point, bringing all of that together and fitting it together in a school and, and leading that, I mean, you could, I'm sure you could do something really amazing. So well, there's loads more that we can talk to. I think we're going to have to invite you back for a few more podcasts in the future. Um, maybe where we look at really specific um, elements. If, if you were given if you were giving some advice to, to your everyday teacher, to people working in schools, to people, new leaders, whoever it may be in schools, this podcast, our, our strap line is at the heart of education lies collaboration. I mean, we believe that more than anything. If you had to give them a couple of tips for helping them to progress their careers, what would, what would you say in terms of professional development? So I love that tagline at the heart of collaborate at the heart of, education life collaboration yeah i love it so much but hold off my tongue <laughs> i'm sorry okay. the reason why okay. i love it though is because i think above all else i'm incredibly interested in our professional conversations so my yeah. first piece of advice is never underestimate the importance and power of any of the conversations that you have with colleagues on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis okay. Because the conversation is the relationship. So the things we say yeah. to each other, how we say it, incredibly important. I think, yeah. so number one, relationships matter. Number yeah. two, 
I think model vulnerability and humility. So if you want others to learn and to truly develop their practice as a middle leader or a senior leader, you have to be willing to show up and be seen. And I'm not trying to sound Brené Brown, <laughs> sound like Brené Brown here, but she is right. I think one of the most powerful catalysts for encouraging change in others is in modeling vulnerability um, the vulnerability of your own learning and your own mistakes because people will be far more likely to open up and admit the things that they find difficult or admit the things that they uh, need help with so number two the power of vulnerability and I think number three reflection so you can never reflect too much uh, I yeah. think self-awareness is incredibly important I think like anything it takes practice and so for number three, I'd encourage you to surround yourself with colleagues or friends who are going to give you kind, uh, candid feedback. So we want to be able to, if we're going to reflect, we need to have the type of feedback from people that's going to give us into insights into our blind spots that we can't see. And again, that yeah. links habits and behaviors. Um, so they would be my three bits of advice. So value the conversations, model vulnerability, reflect seek feedback see seek feedback yeah and i think what you said about the blind spots is is critical for those people who, who might not have seen it if you googled the jihari window ah uh, big fan of jihari window yeah, yeah that 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 that's the the blind start spot and the the theory is that the higher up you go in leadership the less likely people are ever going to really tell you exactly where your blind spots are so seeking that feedback from people is critical because ultimately the more you climb the ladder the more when you ask people, you directly impact on their careers. So actually, they might not be willing. They're probably only going to tell you 50% of the truth. So if you can surround yourself in, with some people who are going to give you more than 50%, if they're going to give you 90%, very few people give leaders 100%. I think that is so powerful. So Catherine, so much, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast and for, for giving us um, a real insight into um, professional learning development. For me, um, I genuinely am going to listen back to this. And, um, you know, I think it's fine to say I wasn't familiar with the work of Vivian Robinson. Uh, I'm going to go and, and, and do a bit of research on Vivian Robinson and, uh, and understand that. Um, refresh and also look at some of our strategies because some of the things you've described, I'm going to say honestly, I don't think we're particularly great at Robin Hood Matt there, that we've got to sharpen up and. Um, and that's partly down thanks to uh, this conversation with you. So thanks so much. Thank you ever so much for having me, Steve. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to today's podcast. And we hope that the conversation with Catherine has proved as useful to you as it has to us. If you do want to follow Catherine on Twitter, you can follow her by using her hashtag at KLMorgan underscore two. If you have any feedback on today's topic, then please tweet us at Robinhood Trust and use the hashtag share-ed. This has been a Robinhood Multi-Academy Trust production. We believe that at the heart of education lies collaboration. So until next time, catch you later. Thanks for listening.